0: Welcome to another episode of Tell Me Another, a podcast dedicated to telling good stories from history. Stories of genius and folly, compassion and cruelty. Instead of sitting around a campfire telling stories of our ancestors, we are coming to you from the History Department of the U.S. Naval Academy, located in Annapolis, Maryland. We are coming with stories to tell, and we hope you listen. With us today in the studio are our three co-hosts, Professor Rick Ruth, research associate Dr. Lorraine Patterson, and associate professor Thomas Burgess. In the first episode of a two-part series, Thomas will narrate for us the remarkable story of the rise of Jean bidel Bocassa, who went from being orphaned at the age of six to eventually become the emperor of the Central African Empire and one of the most controversial dictators Africa has ever produced.
1: African societies emerging from the ruins of empire in the 1960s faced a host of challenges, not the least of which were unscrupulous dictators who came to power through coups or elections. Like dictators around the world, they were guided by self-interest and the feeling that they were creatures of destiny with full license to plunder their nations of their resources. In the case of Jean Bedel Bokassa, he was guided by the belief that he was an African chief and father to his people, with every right to rule by decree." And that what he was doing was no worse than what the French did to his country during colonial days. As Brian tightly notes, though Bocasa was not the most ruthless of dictators, he was easily one of the most flamboyant. His imperial coronation as emperor, Bocasa, cost tens of millions of dollars and was deliberately modeled on that of Emperor Napoleon Bonaparte, his hero and idol. And yet beneath all the trappings of power, there was a very human side to Picasso, which we will soon explore. Picasso was born in 1921 in what was known as French Equatorial Africa. As the local headman, his father's job was to lock up villagers in order to force their relatives to work for the French company given free reign to extract whatever wealth it could from the region. But then one day, his father took pity on a few of these hostages and released them without the company's consent. For this, he was arrested and publicly beaten to death. A week later, Bacasa's mother was so grief-stricken, she committed suicide. As a six-year-old orphan, Bacasa was entrusted to a Catholic mission school where he learned French and graduated in 1939 at the age of 18. He then signed on as a soldier in the French army. He was following his grandfather's advice that, quote, the man who joined the French army learned as much as if he had lived three lives. After France's surrender to the Germans in 1940, French Equatorial Africa was the first of France's overseas possessions to side with General Charles de Gaulle, the leader of the Free French Army in Exile, which pledged to carry on the fight against the Germans alongside the Americans and British. This meant that Bokassa marched north across the Sahara Desert to fight the Germans and Italians in North Africa. In 1944, he took part in the Allied amphibious landing in Provence in southern France. The next year, he marched all the way to Germany. He saw action and was decorated for bravery.
2: So, Bocas is among the last of the tirailleux, the French army's colonial troops that were used as a kind of light infantry in its campaigns around the world. And mindful of all the Napoleon worship that surrounds Picasso, it's interesting to note that these troops have their origins in Napoleon's campaigns in the Mediterranean, and they became a visible and exoticized component of France's military forces for most of the modern era. They were famous for their uh, colorful uniforms. You see them in prints and in magazine articles. Uh, They were used to break up the enemy's established lines ahead of attacks by France's regular forces. They were the French military's equivalent of a boxer's jab ahead of a dominant punch. Now, as a tirailleur, Bocasse is part of an army that helps liberate France from the Nazi's occupation even as France occupies his own land as a colony. And I I find myself wondering how he squared these contradictions.
1: Yeah, I guess that depends on Picasso's perspective at the time. I mean, one might think that a man like him whose father had been killed because of French cruelty and his mother had committed suicide out of grief, that he might bear some resentment uh, towards the French. But from what I've read, Picasso, Uh, didn't harbor such resentment, and he instead he looked for better or worse to people like General Charles de Gaulle as a replacement father figure.
3: I think it's really interesting to think about how the French... Uh, used these African troops very early on in French Indochina, that we'll be talking about shortly. I've read wonderful accounts of the 1880s, how the troops would arrive with African trumpets as a very front part of French battalion. So I think it's an interesting, interesting to think about how they used them as this sort of advance punch that Rick referred to. Mm-hmm. With the
1: war's end, Bacasa chose to stay in the army, and in 1950 was sent to Vietnam, where the French were fighting a losing war against the Viet Minh. Though seeing action and receiving injuries, he enjoyed the personal freedoms of a soldier in French pay, stationed in Southeast Asia. He had a 17-year-old Vietnamese girlfriend who bore him a daughter named Martine, to whose remarkable story we will soon return. Years later, Bacasa reminisced about his time in Vietnam, quote, There was true camaraderie there. I found it most beautiful and brotherly. Because it was a war, a cruel war, friends were more important than all the gold in the world. But I also liked the Indo-Chinese people, hardworking and intelligent, the women sometimes violent but loyal nonetheless, shrewd, born business people capable of profound attachment to their husbands of passage, which we were." This was an apt description because at the end of his tour in 1953, Bokassa was sent back to France and then to Central Africa, which he had not seen in 20 years. By 1961, he was promoted to captain and had received several medals, such as the Croix de Guerre. His native country of Central Africa gained its independence only the year before. Still, France handpicked the head of state, David Daco, and French commercial interest reigned supreme. The French staffed much of the civil service, the currency was tied to the French franc, and the French maintained a military base. A French subsidy accounted for nearly half government revenue. And yet despite such dependence, Daco used his power to get rich and to reward a multiplying number of supporters. Bokassa resigned from the French service and in 63 became commander-in-chief of the Central African Army. It consisted of about 500 poorly trained and equipped men. Despite being cousins, Dako and Bokassa were not on good terms. Dako publicly humiliated Bokassa when he claimed his cousin quote, only wants to collect medals and is too stupid to pull off a coup. Still, out of fear of a takeover, Daco beefed up the police and the gendarmerie. By the end of 1965, Bangui, the capital city, was awash in rumors. Word reached Bacasa that Daco had plans to get rid of him. And so, on New Year's Eve, when Daco was out of town, the colonel put his plans into motion. By clever ruse and intimidation, Bacasa managed to convince Daco's men to throw down their weapons. When Daco returned to Bangui, he was arrested and imprisoned. The leaders of the police and gendarmerie were beaten to death. Still, the seizure of power was relatively bloodless. Caught flat-footed, de Gaulle's government in Paris was initially cold towards the new regime. But within a year, de Gaulle invited Bacasa on an official visit, after which Bacasa gushed that de Gaulle was, quote, "...our only hope after God, and for me, a father."
2: His recollections of fighting for the French against the Viet Minh in Indochina are poignant and and very romantic and maybe a little bit unconvincing. Uh, There seem to be many contradictions buried in his nostalgia. Uh, He seems to be looking back fondly on his time in Vietnam, even though his role there was to help the French maintain their control over what had been an independent country and whose people or at least a significant number of them were fighting to drive the French out. Many Vietnamese who endured the first Indochina War do not remember French colonial soldiers like Bacasa fondly, uh, especially the African troops. Uh, For example, I was thinking about Lely Hayslip's memoir, When Heaven and Earth Changed Places. She associates these African colonial troops, what she calls slash-face legionnaires, as terrible and frightening demonic figures who bring fear and violence with them. She recalls running into Moroccan troops and other African colonial troops, probably Senegalese along with French officers in several scary encounters when she was a child. But in fairness to Picasso's recollection, there are those who do corroborate this notion of fraternity among the colonial forces. I've seen accounts by South Vietnamese officers, uh, memoirs by South Vietnamese officers who fought alongside African troops, invoking a sense of conviviality or closeness from their time fighting side by side, especially over sharing food. There were South Vietnamese officers who came to love the North African dish couscous because they ate it while serving with Moroccan troops. But the common people of Vietnam, the villagers, the farmers, and and other non-combatants who suffered during the war, do not recall France's colonial troops well. Uh, It's also worth pointing out that many of the African troops who fought for France suffered what might be called a crisis of conscience in the latter half of the war that uh, Bocasa remembers so fondly. They wondered how they could go on helping to crush the independence movement of one French colony, even as they dreamed of a future in which they were independent of France.
3: Thomas and Rick, I just wanted to draw your attention to the fact that Bukasa says that Vietnamese women are violent but loyal. And this may say more about Bukasa's personality than Vietnamese women generally. I just wondered if you had any comment on him making a remark like that.
1: Well, I don't know the particulars of his relationship with his Vietnamese girlfriend. I, I wish I could speak with more fluency on that subject, unfortunately. But But as a general comment, I can just say that, you know, this, I think, points to the fact that colonialism brought not just Europeans in contact with Africans and Asians, but Asians in contact with Africans. And this is a story of South-South connection, which we don't always get in the textbooks or, you know, the public lecture circuit. Picasso claimed his coup was meant to rid the country of corruption, and initially, at least, he led a relatively austere life, refusing to take up residence in the presidential palace. Picasso also possessed some reformist ideas. After seizing power, he formed what he called a revolutionary council and began to issue decrees. He banned senior civil servants from dance halls and bars and required all people of working age to provide proof of employment or suffer fines and imprisonment. He banned begging, polygamy, dowries, and female circumcision. He sought to punish parents who prevented their daughters from going to school. He ordered a fleet of buses from France and tried to set up a system of public transportation. He founded a university and television station. He donated a month's salary to Bangui Hospital. And yet, Picasso also suspended the Constitution and abolished the National Assembly. And instead of embracing honesty and discipline, his regime became notorious for corruption and profligacy. Picasso declared, I am everywhere and nowhere. I see nothing, yet I see all. I listen to nothing and hear everything. Such is the role of the head of state. His image became ubiquitous around the capital, appearing on walls, school textbooks, T-shirts, and so on. He threw lavish parties, yet was cruel towards those suspected of disloyalty. Ngaragba prison became notorious for the beatings, torture, starvation diets, and executions meted out to its inmates. Lieutenant Alexander Bonza had orchestrated Bacasa's coup and was afterwards appointed Minister of Finance. But because he opposed government's extravagance, Bacasa removed him from his post. When Bonza was implicated in a coup plot, Bacasa had him executed along with his two younger brothers. He exiled his wife and children and imprisoned his father. Bacasa wanted people to know that to challenge him meant forfeiting the lives and fortunes of their entire families. Bacasa surrounded himself with sycophants who applauded every new decree announced over the radio, such as the amputation of ears for the crime of thievery. He encouraged his people to refer to him as Papa, and to believe he possessed supernatural powers, that he was a sorcerer who could read minds, appear in several places at the same time, and was impossible to kill. Like other dictators, Picasso took every opportunity to enrich himself. One way of doing so was through embezzling French aid, which remained generous and consistent. Picasso regarded his official trips abroad as international begging expeditions. He managed to extract cash from Libya, Israel, China, and so on. To obtain more aid, he briefly espoused socialism and even converted to Islam. For a while, he was known as Saleh Aden Ahmed Bokassa. For this particular act of piety, the Libyan dictator Gaddafi gave Bokassa a personal check for a million U.S. dollars. Some members of Bokassa's entourage followed suit and also netted their cash rewards. Bacasa confiscated French-owned assets and distributed them to himself and his inner circle. He demanded kickbacks from foreign companies exporting diamonds, lumber, and cotton from Central Africa. He smuggled diamonds for sale abroad. After only three years in power, he was able to purchase his first French chateau. Several others followed in the years to come, along with Swiss bank accounts and a fleet of sports cars. His country paid a high price for such largesse. During Bokassa's reign, his country's elephant population was cut in half due to continual poaching. And because of an ongoing budgetary crisis, soldiers and civil servants sometimes went months without being paid. The expansive graft that
2: Bokassa pursues and the bottomless hedonism that it supports is depressing in its predictability, it's something you see throughout history, including modern history. Although I like the detail that he acquires a French chateau as a benchmark status symbol when he starts raking in the serious ill-gotten wealth, the poor boy who grows up an orphan on the edge of a forest in equatorial Africa seeks the civilization markers of the French elite, the French superclass, as proof positive of his success, or his apotheosis, Likewise, the cult of personality and megalomania he cultivates, uh, adorning his face all over the country and issuing statements about omniscience. It strikes me as pathetic uh, also in its predictability. Uh, The European colonialists presented themselves as paternal forces and their subject peoples as children. Bokassa, with no hint of irony apparently, becomes Papa, the omnipotent and all-seeing father to the children, citizens he claims to love and protect, but uh, whom he actually exploits and terrorizes?
1: Yeah, in many ways, Picasso was learning from his contemporaries, uh, and perhaps none more so than the dictator uh, just to the south of him, Mobutu, in uh, the Congo. I mean, Mobutu took megalomania to an even more farcical and depressing extreme. Uh, for a period in the, in the 70s, Mobutu thought of himself as a semi-divine figure, infallible, godlike, adored by all his grateful subjects. So, and as we'll see very soon, Mobutu and Bakasa uh, were both uh, remarkably adept at engineering dazzling public spectacles. Mikasa craved women and had 17 wives in all. He took pride in persuading them from all over the world to marry him, from Lebanon, Vietnam, Romania, Germany, Taiwan, Sweden, and several African countries. On more than one occasion, he discovered these women on one of his overseas junkets and managed to woo them with the connivance of other heads of state. But he favored none more so than Catherine, a native of Bangui, whom he first spied while she was walking home from school. After three years of cajoling, her father finally agreed to the match. Picasso was 44, and Catherine was a tall and statuesque girl of only 16. He showered his new wife with gifts, gowns, jewelry, and gl- glittering receptions. Picasso probably fathered children in the hundreds, though only 30 were officially recognized. He named several sons after himself, and several daughters, Marie-Anne, Marie-Claire, and so on. Though usually indulgent, Bocasa could also be an impatient parent. He sent five of his sons to prison for insubordination and other petty infractions. For a while, Gabrielle, his Romanian wife, seemed to be making a bid for primacy among Bocasa's many wives. But then the former dancer became sexually involved with the guards on duty at her villa and was shipped back to her homeland. Her guards were not so fortunate. All except one were executed.
2: The multinational or international aspect of his harem is kind of interesting. That Bokassa seems to crave projecting a global reach or a universal appeal, or something like a supranational power by attracting wives from all over the world. With uh, the Mughals in mind, those great uh, Muslim emperors of South Asia, they had themselves painted in portraiture, adorned in gems from across Eurasia and Africa. And to be bedecked in diamonds, pearls, sapphires, rubies and emeralds was a way of saying that your power, your reach or your appeal could stretch from Africa to the Persian Gulf, to India, and all the way to Southeast Asia. And Bokassa seems to view international lives uh, the same way as kind of uh, expressions of global reach and universal appeal. And maybe that's where the interest in bringing his uh, Vietnamese uh, daughter and his Vietnamese wife back to Africa comes in later on. But of course, the most powerful statement is the one he's making to his citizens and to his fellow African leaders and to his European counterparts, that he has the ability to upend what had been rigid colonial-era taboos about race and sexuality involving relationships between African men and women from Europe.
1: Yeah, all that's very true, and you know, Bacasa would brag about all the women he quote hustled from around the world, um, and no doubt, yes, in in doing so, he felt that maybe he was breaking some racial taboos that you just described. Um, but we should also re- remember that he regarded himself as a father and chief to his people. and A chief in pre-colonial African times was someone who had many wives and concubines and indulged himself accordingly. So it wasn't just a life of conspicuous consumption, but conspicuous sexual consumption if you were an, a pre-colonial African chief.
3: Well, Thomas, I'm glad you used the word hustle there, because I think that it's quite inaccurate to say that Bukasa wooed these women. I'm sure there was a great deal of coercion involved. If he was on a state visit to, say, Czechoslovakia and he fancied someone, she probably would have had little choice but to be handed over to him. So in my opinion, these women were being exploited as commodities, certainly not wooed.
1: Well, there was some wooing taking place. Let's admit it. I mean, but yes, coercion also certainly also took place. I mean, the I think Gabrielle, for example, was married when Bacasa uh, first expressed interest, and under Ceausescu's pressure, the, the dictator of Romania, she apparently abandoned her husband and and came to Africa. So yes, we can assume that there is some coercion taking place. But but Bacasa wants to you know come off as some big man who can shower you know jewelry and diamonds on his wives and and that's a form of wooing in a rather crude sense of the word perhaps
3: well thomas i don't really think that of that as wooing per se i mean there's still so much coercion involved no matter what kind of diamonds gems jewelry are being lavished on these women they're being they're being used within these diplomatic negotiations on, on the part of Bukasa and, and countries he wishes to make an alliance with.
2: Yeah, if, uh, as you said, Ceausescu is forcing uh, women to abandon their husbands and, and leave Romania and go marry uh, an African uh, leader, uh, it's clearly there's some kind of geopolitical coercion going on uh, for diplomatic or economic or strategic reasons um, that probably would stretch the, the definition of, of wooing, I guess.
1: Well, okay, I stand corrected, but I do think that uh, f- from Bacasa's perspective, he loved to lavish gifts on women as a sign of his... Uh, uh, big man status and that was just part of his personality and character and he, he thought himself of this as wooing
0: and we may not
1: do so but that that's his perspective
0: and thus we have the remarkable rise of the man who would soon be crowned emperor of all of central africa please join us next time as we hear how at the height of his power Bokassa reunites with his long-lost vietnamese daughter and how she and many others come to suffer from Bokasa's vengeful cruelty.